a dream that we'd all die for A reason for us all to live and something we could fight for I might just help a man up to his feet or hold a newborn But no matter what I do, my hands remembering my rifle Alright, welcome to Virtual State of Mind um, I am your host, Rob Burgundy, Garrett Jones um, Got a, a, a guest willing to jump on last minute tonight As you can tell, not in the studio um, if you saw the steam coming out of my ears as well, if we put the video up, which we don't, but if we did, you'd be able to see the steam coming out because I'm trying to figure out how to do this dweeb stuff and I can't because my arms are too big to be able to, I can't, I can't do everything. It just wouldn't be fair on the dweebs of the world. Um, my guest tonight, Nev, Neville Johnson, you guys will know him possibly from social media, possibly from his writing. Um, we're going to talk a bit about service tonight because Usually, obviously, we record in the studio. Um, I didn't want, you know, I don't think it's really fair to to do ask Nev to do a full episode with me bumbling my way through the controls. So we're going to do a bit of an intro tonight into a service, and then we'll have a, a proper sesh where we 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 sit we sit down on opposite sides of the globe and discuss um, the kind of artistic side of life, the philosophical questions, all those kind of things, um, all the big brain questions that obviously people come here for um nef welcome to the podcast mate yeah um, thank you thank you for having me uh, thank you for the opportunity to uh voice my opinion and my thoughts and my feelings mate before we go into said feelings and i do have tissues on hand um i mean you're very good looking man you're a good looking man for one thing mate i've had tissues handy but before we get into that um we'll go into your service in detail but can you give us the very like high the high, like the kind of the 10,000 foot view of, of where you're from, what your service was? Uh, sure. Um, long story short, born and raised in South Africa. Um, left the country in 2000. I went over to the UK just to travel and work and um, somehow stumbled uh, into the recruiting office in London, uh, joined the British Army, shipped over to Belfast there for two years, um, went over to Cyprus for another two years, back to London. And I think somehow during that stage, I signed up for another two years because they waved money in my face. I thought, great, I'm going to sign up for another two years. So a total of that seven years. Um, so two in Iraq, uh, one in Afghan in 2007. And then I decided I had enough. I'm going to leave all this. And then um, I did some contract work. Uh, back in Baghdad, uh, in private security, I did that for about two and a half years, almost three years, and then um, joined up with my uh, fiance at the time, my, my wife now, um, living a quite family life in New Zealand, of all places. I don't think you can get any further, any farther away from the rest of the world. So you, you know, are you are a true man of the Commonwealth, mate, being all over the I world. am. I am, yeah. Bit of a throwback to Empire days. Yeah, slightly different, yeah, slightly different, yeah. But again, it, it wasn't my plan. My, my original plan was to leave South Africa and go and make it big in Venice Beach, California. I had these bodybuilding dreams of going to Venice Beach, work in a cold gym, um, be like Arnie and Pumping Iron and like, like Franco and Frank Zane and Ed Corny and them. And someone said, well, um, in order to get there, you can struggle because you need a green card, you need to... Um, it in, it's difficult. Someone said, no, it's thing that just provides Sorry, Nev. Well, sorry, you're a great camera. Do you, have, um, do you have a pair of headphones you can bang in, mate? Yeah, shit, yeah, man. Hang on. Yeah, nice one. 
Right, while Nev is grabbing his headphones, allow me to sell you some stuff. <laughs> I am currently drinking a <laughs> I am currently drinking Clearway from Combat Fuel. It's cola flavoured. Uh, Nev, how, how big are my arms looking, mate? Pretty big. Ah, uh, Mahusif, mate. Mahusif. Pretty massive. <laughs> so there you go. Buy some Combat Fuel. Mate, never, you can never let an opportunity like this go to waste, mate, when you're a travelling salesman like I am myself. Um, Combat Fuel, check them out at Combat Fuel on social media. Combat dash fuel on uh the old interwebs neville's now got his headphones on i think that was pretty expertly filled in by me mate but there we go um right good so, yeah got you do you want to turn them up a little bit more if that's possible or, yeah. or whatever if, if you can't mate, just crack on sorry peasants for the <laughs> this is why we have peter at audio cafe shout out audio cafe he does this usually uh, we have two infantry people. To be fair, mate, the fact that we have two grunts on opposite sides of the world who have managed to connect with each other is pretty impressive. Um, but you're saying Venice Beach, mate. You had dreams of going to Venice Beach. Yeah, I had uh, um, these big dreams to go to Venice Beach to make it big there, you know, live the old bodybuilding lifestyle. Um, but that never materialised. Um, uh, how did you end up in Britain then? Because I've been to Venice Beach, mate, and I've been to Britain, live in Britain. There's similarities, <laughs> both have a sky, uh, but other than that, how, how, did you, um, how, how did you then settle on Britain? Was it just that because being from South Africa, it was, you know, it's, is it easy to travel there to, to work, that kind of thing? Well, back then it was easy to travel, um, but it was purely, um, a, a friend said, it, it was a, an easier route. Well, I believe them, very naive back then. It was more than 20 years ago, and they said, it's just easier to get into the US flying yeah. from the UK. And in order to get there, um, some, I needed to get a, some type of visa or to work. So I got myself a two-year holiday working visa. Right. And I thought, if I you know, go up there, I work in a bar or as, as a barman or a waiter. Um, but I somehow got a, a working visa, and, but everything was organized from South Africa. So you pay this bloke, he will then get your visa, everything legit, organized a job, accommodation. But when I got there, it was a big food factory somewhere up north uh, in Evesham. Then it was a full time, seven to seven. You don't see sunlight. You work in this big food factory with loads of other Kiwis, Aussies, and South Africans. So I did that for, um, for a bit. Uh, moved down to Oxford, worked as a barman. And then um, I thought, well, heck, this is shit. I'm going to you know, go back to what I did before I left, which was uh, um, worked as a personal trainer. So and then I worked as a personal trainer in in Knightsbridge, in a, in a hotel there, they had this nice uh, exclusive club for, you know, for all these members. And, you know, I worked there for a bit. So what you're saying is you came over here, stole our jobs, you know, came, <laughs> came here, stole our jobs, working in a factory, not seeing daylight. Thank you for stealing our job, mate. I wouldn't want to do that. Um, <laughs> and uh, so it's one of those things that you mentioned like 20 years ago. Back, I, we have a lot of young listeners who weren't around 20 years ago. And like now, you know, you want to go and do something, you can fucking research it all day on the internet. There's so many people you can ask. Like back in the day, it's like, oh, I want to go to America. You might know one guy that's got an opinion on it and you ask him, <laughs> that probably shapes the rest of your life. Yeah, I mean, the thing is, I mean, back then, um, I knew nothing. We had nothing. And if, if I wanted to go to the internet, I had to go to this local store, you pay the geezer, and then you stay on there for an hour or and a half and you do your research, you know. Um, it, it was difficult. You know, I had no mobile phone. Um, I had a landline and my dad had his old brick of a uh, Nokia phone from, from work. 
And, yeah. and if you needed any information, any, any guidance, any, uh, any research, you had to go in and do that the, the hard way. You know, um, there was no social media back then, no Facebook. Um, I think there was, no, there was, there was uh, MySpace. I had a MySpace account, which I've opened up in when I first got to the UK, the old, you know, the old MySpace, you know, mm. before everything changed and everything just um, went berserk. When you used to have to list your top mates on there, that was awkward. You had to, you yeah. know, the top, you had to list your top, like top five mates or something. Um, yeah. Yeah, well, I can't remember if it did or for you automatically or not. But anyway, uh, either either way, I'm sure that probably caused a few arguments. Um, Who's she? Um, so, <laughs> how was it that did you have family or anything that served in the military? Was like where did this idea come into that I'm going to go from personal training in London to joining the British Army? Well, this is another sort of side story. Um, my old man, my my dad, he served in the South African police force. Now, before I had the dreams of, you know, being like Arnie and going to Venice Beach and pumping iron, I wanted to follow in his footsteps because uh, he served in South African Police Force and he then, back then in the late, um, was it late 70s, early 80s, he served in the South African border war in Angola and Southern Africa and those places, you know. And um, in my dream was to be like him, you know, go and follow him, fight alongside him and join the South African Police Force. And also I had my mom, she was a nurse. A whole family of, you know, uh, people in uniform. My, my grandfather, he served in the um, South African Air Force and then alongside the uh, RAF during the Second World War. And so he, he took part in the, um, it, um, the North African campaign and also in, in Italy. And so that was the, the main dream, the main focus. And then as, you know, as the world sort of turned out, it didn't work out that way. So I thought, okay, well, fuck it. I'm going to have to do something else here. You know, I did try. The universe had other ideas, and that's where the bodybuilding sort of dream um, came to effect. But so it what, was ultimately the, uh, the police thing, but then th- that didn't work out. And then obviously during my time within the UK, I thought, hey, can I, I want to stay longer. I don't want to stay legally. They would have no clue what I'm doing because my two-year holiday working visa was running out. So I thought, they're not going to know because she's legally supposed to be working part-time as a bartender or as a barman or waitering, you know, I work full time and that came to almost a close. So I thought, shit, I want to stay on. <laughs> so then I applied for a student visa to study full time. <laughs> that lasted about a month. So I thought, fuck it, they're not going to know. The board of control, not going to come over looking for me. So I went back to the hotel working full time. And then it was at that stage where I thought, either go back to South Africa or join the, the, the British police force. And that's the same issue saying that, uh, yeah, you can join, but you've got to sort out your own immigration issues. Mm. And then um, a friend that, or an acquaintance mentioned, there's quite a few South Africans in the, uh, in the Royal Marines. Can't join the British Army. Um, and that's what, I, uh, what happened. So I joined the, the British Army in 2003. So was this, joined 2003, was this just before Iraq or did Iraq just kicked off? Well, the thing is, that at that stage, I think it just kicked off. Um, and that was also after 9-11. But 9-11 had no impact on me um, in the sense of there was no motivation to go and join purely because of that. I thought it was an opportunity for me to go in, um, follow in my dad's footsteps more somewhat, but still to go in, instead of joining the police, I can go and join the army. And I thought being a foot soldier was, was fitting for me at the time, instead of joining, uh, say, any other corps or, or, the, or the Air Force or the, uh, or the Navy. So 
when you when you did join, obviously the Iraq, um, you know, the invasion had happened. What were your feelings towards? What, did you want to go? Did you want to be deployed, or were you just? Was it just purely like I just need a job at this point? Don't really care. At that stage, I thought it'd be fitting um, to go where the action uh, was um, at the time, because um, I thought, you know, looking to my dad, looking to my mom, what they've um, been through. Um, I thought, hey, this is this is my opportunity now to go and prove it to me, and the action is there. I want to go where the action is. And um, I started opening doors and I went straight and I, I was happy. And what was your family's reaction like to it? Well, um, I remember the first time when I, I actually rang home, I was, um, I, I've already joined up and I remember it was when they deployed us, when I volunteered. It was that stage, I, yeah, hey, I volunteered. I was happy. I phoned home, I told my dad, listen, yeah, um, yeah, I'm in the unit, we're going to go to Iraq. My dad was, yeah, he was supportive. He didn't say much. But my mom on the other side, yeah, she wasn't too happy. She was, uh, she was uh, quite sort of uh, unhappy, to say the least. You know? But they, uh, when I joined up, when I passed basic training, yeah, very supportive. They flew over to the UK. They oh, were cool. there for the passing up parade. Uh, very, um, yeah, very, um, it was a very um, happy day for, for the family. You know? And obviously a proud moment for my old man. Must have felt quite surreal that you just kind of come through such a wide range of experiences in like a really short kind of space of time. So this is, this has occurred over what, two years, all this stuff, all the coming from coming to the UK to the joining the armies about two years altogether. Yeah. Yeah. It's because I, I left, it was in June or July, 2000 when I went over and yeah, it was, uh, and then it was in just the beginning of 2003, middle of 2003. And then I thought I've got to make the change. This is for me. Um, something just clicked. Something just felt right. I thought, this is what I want, and I'm going to go for it, you know. And um, I had no plan B. I had no, um, no other plan. So if, if, if it wasn't meant to be, I was fucked. Because mm. then what? I would have to go back to South Africa. So I thought, no, I'm going to put all my eggs in one basket, and I'm going to go for it. And um, how old are you at this point by the time you finish basic? Oh, shit. I joined, uh, basic, I was about 26. So I was the okay. oldest in my intake. So mm. I, was, I was, yeah, I was my... Our section commander, I think he was 26, and all the other lads, young, really yeah. fucking young. And, um, but, I, I mean, that didn't bother me, and I put my pride in my pocket, and I cracked on. And if they told me to, to go do a certain thing, you know, I did it, you know, and, and more. But it, age at that stage wasn't an issue. My, my goal was to, to get through basic and, and deploy. What was that like, though? Because I, I do get quite a few messages from people saying, like, oh, I'm in my late 20s, and I'm thinking about joining. Um, you know, and they ask you kind of advice on that and stuff. So what would you say to anyone who's in that position, you know, mid-20s or later, who's thinking about joining? Uh, join. You bring with your life experience. You might not have a, um, have the young age or, or you, might, you might feel, or have the, the, the wrong illusion thinking you might not fit in with them, but I would say you will. You know, you bring with that life experience. You know, I had a total different life, different career in South Africa, within, in the UK the first couple of years. You know, I was a qualified personal trainer. I loved it. I trained people. Uh, it was a unique environment. And then I joined and I went through basic training, you know, initially thinking, oh, shit, I'm the oldest here. Um, but no, definitely join. What you bring with is, is your life experience, you know. People can, can then uh, look, you know, look up to you or ask you for, uh, for guidance now and be a good um, example as a, a possible leader. And was that the same kind of thing when you got to your battalion? Ah. Uh, not really, no battalion life. You know, he went straight into the doing all the shit jobs again, put from my pocket. You know, you, you're the, 
the, uh, the small fish in the Mahusif Big Pond where uh, you volunteer for everything. You've got to prove it to yourself and to your, um, to your unit, to your platoon, to your search, you know. But again, I went straight to Belfast uh, when I finished basic. Again, I'd, I've done no prior research on the history of Northern Ireland and why the Brits went there. Uh, so it was a big eye-opener for me. It was a big learning curve. But um, yeah, again, you volunteer, you, you prove it to them. Um, and you'll make it. So when you went over there, was there still patrols going on? Was there public public order? What kind of things were you doing out in Northern Ireland? Public order patrols. I think we're the last unit to have done foot and vehicle patrols and public order role. Um, so yeah, so it was full on at, at that stage. All, all the um, main issues, I think, um, sort of ceased or stopped at, at that stage. But yeah, I think we're the last uh, unit to have done foot and vehicle patrols. Um, during that time, it was surreal because you went, you go to the area in Belfast, you're in full gear um, with a weapon, you know, um, you've got your magazine on and you're patrolling a suburban area, a street, there's shopping centers, people walking, going to the job, minding their own business. Uh, so it felt really odd. And you get in a vehicle driving through certain areas and they brick you or they throw, you know, they snatch with uh, the bottles or bricks, you know, because some areas they, they don't mind you. Other areas that just hated the, the English or the Brits or anyone in, in, in a British uniform. So, did that stand you in good stead then for, you know, cause I'm just thinking, you know, you for how long were you out there for? Six months? Or, um, or, about about yeah. first, it was, it was a two year residential tour. Okay, so you did two years of doing patrols, yeah. foot vehicle, foot and vehicle patrols. Like, that must have stood you in really good stead for when you went out to Iraq, where basically you're doing a very similar kind of, you know, role, except in um, obviously more of a hostile environment, with more of a threat. But essentially, the drills are the same. Oh yeah, totally. Especially with you know, you've got your um, vehicle patrols, foot patrols. You're working with the local population. It might be different language, but the the drills and skills still the same. You've got your farmer twenties. Um, you've got uh, eagle uh, VCPs where they pick you up, you drop you off, you pull over vehicles, you search, you look. Uh, so the training uh, was basically the same. So that yeah, prepped us for that time in, in Iraq. And I wasn't up to like six, I think it was, because we left in, went over in 2005. So we deployed from, from Belfast. So the training that we did in the public order role, not so much public order, but definitely the, uh, the foot patrols, vehicle patrols, and, and all the other skills and, and drills that goes with it was, uh, was definitely um, uh, helped us in, in that time. How was that first tour for you in, over in Iraq? Well, I think it was a bit of an anticlimax, you know, because some of the, the, the units that went before us, they've seen a lot of action in Alamara. We've seen all these videos coming out. So we were roaring to go, closing with the enemy, I can kill. And when we got there, it was a massive, you know, anticlimax, you know. So during the six months, we didn't shoot anyone. I didn't fire off my, my weapon. We did endless patrols, foot patrols, vehicle patrols, choppers, uh, a lot of guard. And uh, done v- uh, various sort of um, ops with, um, with the SAS, um, with other units, you know, strike cops, you know, at night time, that, that sort of thing. But it was a bit of an anticlimax, you know. You're trying, you're, you're wanting to go, you're roaring to go, you get there and, and it's the mundane life of, you know, routine of getting in the routine, doing these uh, foot patrols, vehicle patrols, you know, the same areas day in and day out, you know. Yeah. Was there a moment where it kind of came together for you and you realised that you'd actually ended up 
by chance and by a lot of obviously, you know, left and right turns that you'd ended up where you were supposed to be? Did you feel like you were doing the job that you were meant to be doing? Yeah, definitely. I felt this was my role. This was my calling. And if it wasn't uh, meant to be within the police force, this was definitely my calling. This, this was, I felt at ease. I felt comfortable. I felt that there was home. This was a place, you know, I was, I was meant to be in uniform, whether it be this African, you know, uh, police force or, or the British Army. It felt fitting and uh, I, I, was, I, was, uh, I was stoked. I was happy. So let's go to a bit of a philosophical tangent here then. Do you think that that feeling, is that something that is, do you pick up through your parents, society, or do you think that some people are bored with that inside them? Uh, so I just say, I, feel, I think for me, it's, it's always been there. You know, it was a strong desire, strong feeling to, to follow in my dad's footsteps. You know, he served in the South African police force. I've got my mom. She was a nurse. Her brother, he was a firefighter. Her dad was um, in, a, um, in the police as well. Uh, my grandfather, he was a, a pilot in the Second World War. Uh, so I think it's in the blood. Um, it was just there. It was, it was a connection. Um, I don't think I've, I think it, it seeked me out it, and it was, it was meant to be. I think, I think the universe opened up a certain door or guided me with a light, whatever you want to call it. Um, but yeah, I, I just think it was meant to be. Yeah. Mate, I don't, I'm not sure if we mentioned this yet. So apologies to the listeners if we haven't, but what, what unit was it that you, that you ended up being posted to? Did we, did, I can't remember if we actually said the unit name. It was, uh, was, uh, it was two, two RRF, was it you were? Yeah, yes, yeah, second fusiliers. Yeah. So that and that was the same as we had uh, Dave HP on. You were the same battalion yeah. as Dave, right? Yeah, sweet. yeah, yeah, same battalion. We we played rugby together. Yeah, so uh, good luck. He he got there uh, just after me. I think he got there when we were based in Cyprus. You know. All right. Big question. Then who's the better rugby player? Uh, I would say. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Dave. <laughs> uh, when, when did you start? When did you start playing rugby? Was that uh, in the army or as a kid? No, um, growing up in South Africa, I think in South Africa it was kind of expected. You know, you're a boy growing up, you're going to go play rugby. You can barely walk. Here's a ball, go and play. You know, I remember in primary school, you played bare feet. You know, and as you get older, you can get your your boots on. But yeah, it was it was part of the South African way of life. You know, you have as, as Africana, as Africans, you know, kid growing up, you know, you either play rugby or cricket or athletics or all three. And I played rugby throughout my whole sort of school career or school time. And uh, I did try to play club level after school. And then I just lost confidence for whatever reason. I thought, no, nah, I'm going to have to suck it and leave it. Then the bodybuilding came to, into play. Mm. And it was until I got to Cyprus, then I had the opportunity to go and play rugby for the, for the battalion. Which Obviously. was phenomenal. So we played um, in uh, Cyprus. Which, uh, we played for the in Akaturi at the big um, Air Force Base. We played Akaturi tens, sevens, fifteens. Played local teams. Played uh, the RAF um, engineer units, and it was a phenomenal time because you get away from battalion. You could you, you do your own thing, your own first, your own training, and I and I loved it. It was it was great. But that was and then after that it stopped. I didn't do any any other sort of uh, sports after that. What, what position did you play? Uh, lock and also uh, number eight. Right. How, are you tall? Are you tall? Are you? No, no, I'm about 5'11". Right. Okay. Yeah, I mean, that's one of the things that's crazy about sports is like nowadays, you see the size of people playing and like just people just weren't like even 20, well, not, I mean, fucking hell, okay, I'm a bit older than that when I started playing 30 years ago. <laughs> but people just weren't as big. <laughs> 
People weren't as yeah. big. Like I know you'd like you'd have the odd freak, but like now when you see like the size of um, like even semi pro teams now, you're like fuck, everyone's huge. Like like I, I, like I think over the last twenty years, we've just um, obviously uh, sports science has has taken leaps and bounds. But I just think in general, like America's always produced big people because they have a lot of you know they have these like the whole, the, all that saying of like corn fed people, you know. But I I think in the UK for a long time people weren't that big generally because I don't think people ate that much here and stuff. But now you get, if you get, you get kids now with the right genetics and they get a lot of food growing up and they get weightlifting from a young age and stuff. And now people are just ending up a lot. Uh, People are just ending up as fucking specimens like all over the place now. Um, With with rugby there, I know you're you're a father yourself. What's your kind of, you know, I'm I'm not a father. Well, other than I do have a cat. But um, I'm a big believer that I do think that I'm, and honestly, I, I really don't know the, the answer to the question of like. So I'm just going to say young boys because I really haven't considered the other side of the equation. Um, but I really do believe that the young boys should play contact sports. Um, what's your kind of like thoughts on that? Well, the thing is, I mean, for me, having my my young boy, yeah, um, I'm going to support what he wants to do, but I want also at the same time, I'm going to try and motivate and steer him in a direction I think would be good for him. You know, whether you want to do it or try it, great. But if he doesn't want to do it, obviously I'm not going to force him. Because I remember um, over the years, was a few years ago, uh, so they've got this young sort of, uh, they're called Ripper Rugby, where the young kids, they've got these tags and you've got to go over there, pull the tag and then you've got to give the ball back to the other team. So instead of tackling at that young age, because my boy is only six, so they don't have a full-on contact sport at that stage. He tried. Um, he went there for the games. He went there for the, for the practice sessions. And it came to a point where he just did, you know, he refused. You know, he bawled his eyes out. So I thought, shit, okay, cool. I'm not going to force him. We're going to pick a different sport. And then now he's into uh, football, which obviously they call soccer over here. You know, and he loves it. You know, and it's full on. It's, you know, there's tackles and, and he loves it. So I'm going to try to steer him and support him and direct him in the area that I think he should play because they learn that way. You know, they, they get into a tackle, he runs over to me, pulling his eyes out, and then you're there for him. So, you know, that's how they learn, how he, how he learns on, on the field. You know, I'm not there, can I cuddle and give him hugs and every time I tell him, oh, no, it's, it's okay. And, you know, you learn the hard way, you know, I believe, you know, yeah. you learn from your mistakes, from my mistakes, but I'm not going to go on the field with him. You know, he's got to go on there and learn by himself. I can, I can coach from the side or a, He's got to listen to, to his, his coach, but he's, he's got to ultimately get in there. So I think a contact sport, whether it be a rugby or a f- a football, is a, is a good way to go. I think, I think the team aspect as well is important, isn't it? Massively. You know, Massively, yeah. Like figuring out that, you know, that you can win as part of something with it. You know, it's... Uh, but I mean, there's obviously like a downside to that too because... There's sometimes that people might just wrap the tits in and hang around on a wing rather than getting in there and doing any work and stuff. Um, yeah. AKA wingers, I see you, lazy. Um, but, you know, there's, there, there, there is that kind of side of it as well. But when I look at people now who have done like a lot of like, say, I remember like seeing people who've done very well at tennis and that kind of thing as, as kids, there was, they were definitely very different in mentality to, to someone who'd, who'd been very successful in, say, rugby or football at the same. Well, maybe not football, because I do think that gets corrupted by money. 
I do, I do feel that, that that starts to creep in as well. Once you're good enough to maybe go on to get selected to, you know, where there's so much money at stake in football and stuff, I think that even though it's a team sport, that can then, you can then start to individualise the sport by incentivising individual performance too much. So without going on too much of a of sports tangent, basically, if you listen, you've got kids, make them run into each other. That's my advice. <laughs> Someone that doesn't have any kids <laughs> and has never had to deal with managing crying kids. Um, so with the Iraq tour then, mate, is there, is there anything that you would like to talk about on that tour or, or, or was it like, because I'll, I'll just say my, people ask me about my first Iraq tour, I'm just like, it's just boring. It's not really much to talk about. So um, is there anything you'd like to talk about from that tour or should we move on to Afghanistan? Um, from that tour, um, all I can add was, yeah, it was interesting. It, it was different, a different environment, different country. You know, you had that sort of fear factor flying in. You, you know, shit, you know, it's, there's a big possibility that that's um, dead cow will be driving past. It's got a, you know, a possible that it, there's an ID in it, you know. Um, and the heat, the culture, it was, it was a great experience. But then ultimately, in the end, it was a big anti-climax, you know. What we wanted as a, as a unit deploying, we never got. Um, however, there was a, a different um, call sign from our unit that got um, hit, um, not once, but twice. And we had um, yeah, two, two lads that, that, that died on that, um, on that patrol and another further two that lost limbs, you know, their bloody legs burned off. Um, but besides, besides that, it's, um, yeah, it was a big sort of, you know, it's a long drawn out tour and um, far different from, from Afghan, that's for sure. I think that's one of the things that kind of sucked a bit about those Iraq tours as well was that you had all the dangers of getting your legs blown off or dying, but you didn't get the kind of trade-off of getting to put 500 rounds down on a contact. Yeah. yeah. You know, is, that, is that kind of how you felt about that? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think it was a long tour and, and we just wanted just to, you know, get into a contact with the enemy and just, you know, lit up some, some steam and I get some rounds uh, downrange and, and that never happened, you know. Uh, it's funny because other areas did and units before us did, but for whatever reason in Basra, in Basra Palace, because I think we deployed to the same place. Well, um, I, I wasn't at I wasn't the palace. I was at the, uh, the, the air base, the cop. Okay. I, mean, I okay. went to the palace and stuff, but I've never lived there. Yeah, it was, yeah, it was different, yeah. I think after a while, you know, it, it just, I thought, okay, cool. Okay, great, I've been here, yeah, ticking the box, you know, yeah. let's move on, you know, top, yeah. top thinking. Yeah, um, and me and Joe have talked about this on Rants and Bounce and stuff before, but it's, you know, you have to stick your hand up and be honest. It's like by us wanting to kick off, it's like you're, you're it, it basically, we were there to kind of do quote-unquote peacekeeping, but really we'd rather that there wasn't peace because we wanted to have a scrap, um, you know, and that, but that's the truth, isn't it? It's like, you wanted yeah. to go there and put rounds down and, Oh yeah. It's, and it, it's this weird, like it's this weird in between kind of thing, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, that, that's what you train for. We, we infantry, you know, you're there to close in, capture, kill, regardless of weather, season or terrain, you know, and, um, and it didn't happen, you know, you had to drive around endless and after what you think, what the fuck are we doing there? What's, what's the point? You know, you're seeing everyone else having a scrap, um, and then you kind of like at that stage, so I thought, okay, that's fine. Believe leadership. They know what they're doing. We're doing the right thing. We're making a difference. You know, we're giving water to the kids. It's just all working out, you know, but now thinking back, you know, that's, that wasn't the case you know, mm. at all, at all. And we're definitely going to get into that when we do part two, when we start hitting the big philosophical questions. But I want to hit Afghan today, mate, because mm. I know the people listening 
I know they're bloodthirsty fuckers <laughs> and they want, they want to hear some war stories from Afghanistan. So can you tell us about, um, can you tell us about when you went out there and uh, kind of your, what, what environment and situation you, you thought you were going to be going into? Um, prior to that, you know, training was because when we deployed to Iraq the second time, 2006, again, another sort of quiet tour, we, um, I think we came back from our Christmas sort of leave went straight to the parade square and our CEO um, told us, everyone, um, I hope you guys had a good break. Now you can train to go to Afghan. And, and from that, we knew it was going to be different. You know, the training um, was, was, was different. The mindset was different. But also at that time, because we were based in Cyprus, uh, we, we had various other call signs and um, oh, that's already deployed. To, to Afghan um, the year prior to that I think they went to A&P Hill I think HP talk about this yeah. uh, when they went there um, and uh, again it was smaller fraction smaller units deployed uh, all over the place so we had a lot of uh, fusiliers um, um, all over Afghan but the training leading up to it the mindset was vastly different and then getting ready and then going there again, the feeling was different. We've, 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 we've done Northern Ireland. We've done it two tours of uh, Iraq and then just getting there. It just, there was a different feeling. Uh, we already had a, uh, a few, you know, um, blokes that's, you know, the veterans, they've, they've, they know what to, um, what to do. Um, getting there, we spent some time in Bastion. I think it was Bastion. The Bastion. Yeah. 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 The big, the big Mahusa yeah, place. place. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I spent about a, a week there. And um, so we, um, we were told that we're going to go into Sangan, D.C. and take over from, I think it was the Royal Marines. Um, they had this big sort of um, fob there. I think it was an old farmhouse that I think the Brits uh, paid the farmer to, to take over eventually. You know? And then the Paris under contact, they then fortified that sort of, um, that, that compound. The Marines took over and then we took over from, over from the Marines. But we flew in, in two different um, chalks. Um, well, two two different groups. The first group went in the one uh, night uh, to, to, um, to Chinooks. And then I was in the, in, the, in, the, in the one group that was supposed to go in the second day. And then we knew things were different because our group cuts or timing got delayed because there were two uh, Royal Marines that got killed uh, uh, whilst in the Sanger. And, oh, and that an hour. Yeah, it, one of them was actually from Zimbabwe. Um, I think they, yeah, they, they were um, commanders. So there was a big, listen, yeah, you and how it's going to be full on. It's going to be full on. And so, so our flight in, they got delayed by, I think, 24 hours. Flew in. The flight in, I think, will always stick with me because um, they said it's either going to be noisy or it's going to be quiet. Noisy is they're going to try and attack us. And then every man in his dark and all the sangers is going to open up and uh, just to um, stop the enemy from bloody shooting down the, the Chinooks. And then you've got, I think it was about 30 seconds to, to get out, get all your gear, your bow and your day sacks, you know, weapon, everything, get out. And then the other you know, commanders, they're waiting to get on. And if you don't make it, then, then you're screwed. You know, that Chinook's not going to come back anytime soon, you know. Um, yeah, so it was a noisy um, flight in. Yeah, there were rounds coming in from the Taliban and, yeah, all the singers open up, chaff everywhere, and it was a uh, adrenaline rush. You know, went in, uh, went to into the big sort of farmhouse, and well, unbeknownst to us, they've already called in um, air support from the Americans to to come and drop some ordnance. You know, 
I had no idea. And then I, I would produce Sergeant. He was there before. And then he said, okay, cool, incoming, you know, and he counted down. And when that dropped, I thought, shit, I'm, I'm dead. I thought it was incoming, you know, but they didn't tell us. It was actually, you know, friendly forces, the Americans, you know, they were us having grace, uh, the, the, the American Air Force, you know, dropping the amount of ordnance dropping in that area was just phenomenal. So there was a big sort of welcome um, to, to Bloody Sangan, you know, um, different from, from, Af- uh, from Iraq for sure. Yeah, I mean, you made up for your, that sounds like that, just that, that flight there, they made up for your last tour, definitely. Um, so what kind of, uh, when you were out there then, what kind of rules of engagement were you on and what was the, what was the kind of the, the intent and the mission for you in Sangin? Well, for us at that stage, um, rules for engagement once you see anything move, you open up. At that stage, all the local population have left, left Sangin. So that bazaar, they had there, all the road with all the shops, it was empty. No one there. At that stage, all the locals in the local vicinity of um, the district center, they had, they've left. No one there. The only people there that, was, uh, that, that surrounded our, our FOB was the Taliban. You know? So we spent the first... I, th- I think it was first the first 18 or 20 days in, in defense, defending the compound where they attacked us from all directions, multiple times a day, you know, anything from, you know, sniper fire, small arms, uh, mortar rounds, RPGs, um, multiple times a day. Uh, we came to a point where we were running low on, on ammunition and also on food. Luckily we had the Roman, uh, Roman Marine engineers there to help us filter the water because uh, part of the Sangin River ran actually through the compound. So we have water, but we came to a point where, you know, we were running low on, on, on ammunition, you know, and, and we, um, again, if it weren't for the Americans, uh, for the Air Force and for the fact that, you know, there's amazing pilots, the, uh, of, of the Chinooks, our, you know, RAF, that brought in eventually the, uh, the supplies that we really uh, needed, you know, fuck knows what, what might've happened, you know. It does kind of beg the question, like, the locals out there, it's fighting day in, day out. What is the kind of the, you know, obviously ordinance having to be dropped on what is compounds, which people, you know, we always forget, or well, definitely, I never did, even thought about it at the time. A compound is actually somebody's house. Yeah. So it's like, the good, there's no locals, they've all gone. It's just a fight between the Taliban and the Brits whilst dropping bombs, to, to not get overrun, obviously, because we, you know, not saying that fucking we want to be letting our blows get overrun, obviously, we don't want that. But it does kind of like make you beg the question of like, well, what is the, what's the kind of like, what's the goal here? You know, what, what, what's actually, what's actually the plan, all right? We've, right, we've killed another however many Taliban today. Well, they're coming the next day and they're coming the next day. And obviously, as we know from, um, you know, uh, hindsight now, they never left. Sanguine. So, but I'm sure at the time you were probably all you were thinking about was fucking one day to the next. Yeah, the thing is, you, you would just, you know, live from moment to moment. You know, at, at that stage, we couldn't, well, we were told you're not going to go on any foot patrols because um, there's just too many of them and we're just basically defending it. So, it, it was, it, that was our daily routine of just defending this compound, you know, and then you would rotate through. The area from one sanger, you move in, stay there for three days, you go into a different sanger, then you go into main building. And so that was your routine, you know, and, and it became the, the norm. It wasn't until after that, that initial sort of 20 days that we could get out. And then we joined a big strike ops with, I think, the uh, 82nd Airborne 
I think it was the 82nd Airborne um, Yanks that came in and then started this big strike ops to flush out two patrols with the Royal Marines in their Viking vehicles to start that initial compound clearance going from compound to compound, you know. But then at that stage, I think the Taliban, obviously well-trained, eventually um, moved out somewhat, you know. And so that was the mission at that stage, you know, to, to get on, on foot patrols, uh, vehicle patrols, if possible. Because as you know, uh, a lot of the areas is not suitable for, you know, your, your big sort of um, armored vehicles, you know, that's basically foot. But again, at that stage, it wasn't a big uh, influx of, of IEDs. It was, it was all small arms fire. It was all mortar rounds, sniper. That was the norm for them. But the tactics changed later on in 2009. And that particular tour I missed. But in 2000, um, 2007, it was, um, yeah, it was, it was different in the sense of, yeah, defending it and then go over to strike ops, getting to compound clearance and flushing them out, you know, which was good. It was good getting out there, stretching the legs, seeing the damage that was, that was caused by these um, ordinance that we, that we dropped, you know. Um, again, it was all in your local bazaar, local shops, local town around us, you know, um, and then further out as, as we patrolled going to the local, you know, farming areas and, and it was an eye-opener, you know, the fact that when we eventually done the foot patrols, we, we came across uh, people that refused to leave, you know, locals, you know, and then you meet them and you talk to them and you think, well, you know, how close they, they came to being blown up as, as they dropped the ordinance. But again, the parts were spot on with their ordinance, uh, where they've dropped it. We had um, uh, other, uh, other personnel there that were then calling the ace trucks, guiding the, uh, the, the pilots. But yeah, it was, it was, it was surreal leaving um, Sanger, D.C., and patrolling in the area, and then we see uh, the, the, the carnage or, or the damage that, that was caused. What are your thoughts kind of towards the Taliban as a fighting force, but also just kind of like, what are your thoughts towards them just now, like as a person now? Like, how, how does the kind of thought that make you feel? Oh, and after watching the, uh, the withdrawal of Afghan, uh, a mixture of, of emotions, of anger, frustration, um, the fact that you spend so many hours, so many years there, you've lost so many blokes. It, it, it makes you question a lot. Um, but I believe what we as a, as, as a unit, as a, as a record platoon or as visualist, what we did at the time with what we had, we did our best. You know, that was the job that we, that was given to us. There was orders and we did it to the best of our ability. And, and the rest, you know, was out of our hands. And seeing them now in, in control of the country, is a, it's, it's a bizarre, surreal feeling. Um, and they, were, they were great at, at what they did back then with the tactics, the way they attacked. Uh, maybe not so much with the mortar teams that came in, because I think a lot of the mortar teams that was really spot on came in from, I think, from Pakistan, mm-hmm. came, came across. They were, they were really, uh, really good with their, their aim. But it's... it's um, it's surreal. It's, it's bizarre. I've always thought it's quite funny. People always seem to get pissed like, oh, there's like Chechens here. Like, as if like, like that's, not, that's not okay. It's like, well, we're here. <laughs> like, yeah. Why? yeah, yeah. yeah. Chech- Chechen is a lot closer. Um, but it's kind of funny because people, like, I always just got this impression of people that they'd almost feel like the enemy were cheating a bit because they'd like brought in, you know, like when someone brings in, like, you know, playing rugby as a kid. And you're like, that guy's not like under 15. He's definitely like, that guy's definitely older. <laughs> I always got the feeling people felt like that with the checks. It's like, no, no, we're supposed to just be shooting untrained local people. Like, can't have people, yeah, yeah. Can't have people in here that are really good at this. 
Yeah, I totally think it's also if you look at um, Iraq, you know, those um, our call sign, they got hit. It was the, um, the team that came in from Iran. They had these, you know, um, IEDs that they improvised that became a projectile that went through the vehicle, you know. So it was all different. There was, it wasn't local militia. It was, yeah. you know, people from Iran. And same with Afghan. You had Pakistani, all sorts, you know. It's not just uh, people from Afghan. Well, I always say to people, it's like, look, like, we do it why wouldn't other people do it? You know, like that's what you have to expect. You know, it's like whatever you think is a good idea, somebody else has thought of that idea and is probably, you know, it's probably putting that into, you know, into effect somewhere. And um, yeah, I, I think the, ta- but the Taliban question, mate, I feel is very interesting because I mean, there's so much, it's, when I say the Taliban as well, it's almost like it would be like asking a Taliban fighter, well, what do you think of the British? Whereas we both know there's a big difference between Nev, Gez and Tony Blair. You know, there's, there's, it's not like, you know, it's like all experiences are the same. So would you sit down, if someone said to you, like, we found this guy who was, uh, uh, he was a, a, a Taliban fighter in Sangin, 2007. That's when you're there, right? 2007. Yeah. Um, yeah. Would, would you would you would you would you sit down and talk with this guy? I'm not saying as friends, but would you would you would you be interested in sitting down with that guy that someone that you fired back and forth across and kind of like talking to that person? I mean, yeah, I would. Um, well, I can't say how I would, what I will do um, or react in a, on the day, but yeah, I would like to sit down with him and and just and ask and, and, and discuss, you know, because we didn't really see much of them. You know, they were very good with hiding away because they, once we left saying, and we do all these patrols, we came across all these tunnels, these intricate complex tunnels under the, the area, um, under the town and all their sort of areas that they, you know, would um, have the snipers or would shoot from, you know, um, obviously our snipers could see them, could spot them. But for us, we didn't really, um, see them, so I would like to, yeah, to sit on and and maybe ask a couple of questions. That would be uh, that would be interesting from, from think, their perspective. Yeah, I, I I think the same way, mate. I I think as people like, especially like you know, kind of like people that gravitate towards combat, you always kind of need someone in your life to direct some anger towards. And like, fortunately for me now, I feel like I have that in the politicians. <laughs> I was. So, so that, that leaves me some room to be kind of like, I mean, I won't want to fucking like, I'm not going to invite them on to a fucking boys holiday to a beef or anything, but I think it would be really interesting to, cause like everything that we've seen, you know, one thing with this podcast is you get people on who have done different, like I've, I've we had uh, uh, Dobbo on Andrew Dobson. Um, and I, and we were talking, he was talking about this contact and I was like, I wasn't like in the contact. I was, but I was on the outside of it watching it because he was talking. I yeah. was like, "Hang on a minute, this sounds familiar." Um, and that's two people having a very different experience of the same experience. And yeah. I think it would just be really interesting to know, like, you know, what was it? Because I'm sure there was probably some people that were shooting at you who had come from other countries who were there because um, they thought that you were the evil people. And there was probably some there who were career mercenaries, you know, mm-hmm. who had come for that. And there was probably some people that really believed in what they were doing. And there's probably some people that are there for a job, you know, and I just think it'd be really fucking, it'd be really interesting to know. Cause unfortunately 
they don't do many podcasts, these, these people, mate. So like, <laughs> if you want to learn about our side of things, there's so much to, to go and get from. But like, I think one of the reasons is obviously so many of them just end up dead. Um, but obviously, like, it's just, it's not really so much of a thing in there, you know, to, to kind of put these things out there. And mate, if there was a, I mean, I'm sure you're, you're a big reader yourself. If there was a fucking book out there, like I've read one, if I'd recommend anyone reads it, if you haven't read it yourself, mate, that recommend it. It's called Nine Lives by a guy called Amon Dean. Um, and he went on jihad to Bosnia. Uh, mm. And then he got radicalized further, um, joined Al-Qaeda, and then finally flipped and became a, a, an agent for, um, for the Brits. Um, and it's, it's an incredible story. And it was fascinating, mate, because you're learning about mm. what's it like inside these you know, the groups on the other, on the, on, on the other side, yeah. you know, cause you would think he was basically, I'm sorry, I got off on a tangent here, but it just basically, um, he was saying that when he was in Bosnia and a few of them started, they, they got hold of these paramilitaries that had been committing war crimes on Muslims. And some of them started beheading them. And he was saying that him and like a bunch of other people were like really opposed to it. Cause they're like, no, this isn't what we came over to do. We came over to, mm. to fight soldiers. And I thought, Oh, never even thought that, that there would have been, some people, you know, dissenting in there. Like, it's like, no, no, yeah. we're not having a part of this. If you want to do it right, we're going to go and we're, we're, we're off. We're not having a part of this. And um, I just think it'd be, be really interesting, mate. Um, and who knows, maybe one day, you know, maybe one day it'll, it'll happen. But um, I'll keep posting, mate. If anybody offers, I'll stick you on. <laughs> I'll send you, <laughs> out as my, send you out as the podcast ambassador. Um, so wh- when you were out there, mate, what were some of the, some of the kind of like for you, the, the moments that stick out from that tour? Uh, that god-awful feeling of when you get there, you know that hell and death is imminent it's around the corner it's on it's not on your doorstep it's right next to you that that it's, it's difficult to explain unless you've been there you know the feeling of flying in and you know hang on it's it's not a peacekeeping mission this is flying war fighting you know the rules of engagement is if you see something move you open up because we surrounded by by the enemy you know it's that that feeling that stand out of Getting in, in contact, the, the mortar run that comes in, the explosion, the small arms, the sniper, uh, that's the one thing that's done out, you know, and be able to then what you've been taught to execute that, you know, to, to, to fire back, you know, your draws and skills, it, it just takes over. It becomes second nature, you know. Um, but this, yeah, that feeling is, is the feeling that will always stay with me. You're in that area. And it's, again, it's hard to explain for anyone that doesn't be there. And now you can, Make as many Hollywood movies as you like, but you never be able to um, to make people feel that that feeling. You're there in this combat zone. The enemy is close, and um, the possibility of getting hit by a mortar round or a sniper or small arms or RPG is highly likely. And it's that feeling that sits in your stomach, and you're always alert. You know, you, you sleep an hour or two here, another half an hour there. You know, sleep's broken, but that's fine. You know. Um, but that feeling that, 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 that in your gut, you know, um, yeah, it sits with you. Do you think that you were, because um, we talked about obviously like your calling, you felt that you were in the right place. You know, obviously I, this is quite a, like a difficult question to ask someone as in like it's a bit of a setup, but do you think you were a good soldier? Do you think you were an actual soldier? Is probably a better mm. way to put it. I think there were many areas I could have improved. Uh, many areas that, that I should have improved. Um, improved. I would say I was a good soldier, um, but looking back, 
there's, there's things now uh, that I believe, yeah, I, I should have improved on or opportunities I should have gone for. And, but I think uh, that's the way it is, you know. But I believe I was good. I listened. I was a good soldier and I was loyal. Um, I worked hard. Um, whether it be a natural warrior, it's, it's, it's hard to say, you know. I, th- I think it's probably best just to interview or talk to the people I've deployed with. But, um, you know, I think that was my calling. And I did that. I ticked the box or the box and it came to a point later on where I felt like, yeah, it's time to eventually move on and, and, and leave the armed forces, you know, but um, yeah. What, what about as a, as a, as a leader? Cause I just say for myself, you know, again, this kind of comes back to like the wealth of information that's available to people today. Um, I've talked about this, me, me and John Smith talk about this a lot, hostile operator. Um, just thinking like, you know, now you look at all the stuff that's out there about leadership and like how, you know, there's so many books about it. There's so many podcasts about it. And I think like, God, what an amazing opportunity now to, to be a, a young leader. Yeah. You know, now at this point with all this stuff out there. Um, what was that like for you? Like, how did you, did you feel comfortable in leadership roles? Did you seek them out? Um, you know, like how, how, how did you, you know, what was your kind of experience with military leadership like? Um, I think back then, uh, the opportunities presented itself, but my confidence wasn't there. People could see uh, the ability in me, but I couldn't see it within myself. You know, the, the, the opportunities were there and I didn't go for it. Um, purely because um, I think I was just afraid of what other people might think or say or just believing in myself. Now, obviously, it's different, really, really different. You know, now I believe I'm, I'm more of a, a leader not within my house, my family, but also in the job I do and, and, uh, and, and those type of things. But, uh, but so you learn and, um, and that's taught me a, obviously a, a valuable lesson that if the opportunity presents itself for you to go and do a leadership role, um, go for it. Or if you've got people that really believe in you and they see something in you to, to improve on or they see that you've got the ability to do a leadership course or lead or or do something great, you know, you listen to them and take that, you know. Um, but yeah, again, it was just down to not believing in myself, even though it was there at the time. What, what's something that you really miss about Afghanistan? I would say the camaraderie, the fact that, you know, you've done the training with, with, with the same blokes, you, you've gone through the same shit together, you know, just having the people there. Those, those close bonds you form, you know, and obviously the, 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 the contacts, you know, be able to, to view uh, the bombs dropping, you'll be able to shoot off the machine guns and, and uh, you, in that moment, you know, that was, that was phenomenal. But the fact that you did it with these people, you form this bond, which probably won't happen ever again. You know, I think we were in a unique time with the, with the British Army to, to be able to go to Iraq, be able to go to Afghan, you know, and I also had the opportunity to do private security after that, you know, back in Baghdad in the green zone, you know, and I don't think that's going to repeat itself anytime soon. You know, it was a unique time for us, but I would say, yeah, it was definitely the, the, the bonds you form, the fact that you've, you've, you've gone through the hardship and then the great times together, you know, and, and that's both you and the fact that we've made it and I can look back and think shit and I'm still here. Um, and I'm grateful for that, you know, um, but I would say it's definitely been, been the blokes. Is there that you mentioned the contacts and stuff? Is there a part of you now that's still like, well, you know, wouldn't mind a, wouldn't mind a tasty contact? <laughs> yeah, of course there is. You know, that, that's why I joined the army. 
Um, plus the fact at, at the time I thought, yep, it's easy, sounds good, you know, give a machine gun or a rifle, get in there and get a job done. Not that straightforward. You need training first, you know. But I had no intention of joining the or, uh, engineer unit or you know, get all my licenses in, in the army or um, my main aim was to go and play rugby and that was it, you know. My aim was to go to, to war, you know. My dad did it and I wanted to, to follow in, in his footsteps. And, and I did and I remember the first time when I volunteered for, for Iraq, you know, I got there and I thought, oh, shit, this is, this is dark shit. And I have to do God now. I have to do what? And it's hot. I'm not going to volunteer ever again. And, yeah, when we went a second time, I didn't volunteer. But Afghani was different. It was ultimately different. And I thought, yeah, um, I love it. You know, it's, this is phenomenal. You know, it's, it's, it's what I, I, try, I joined for, you know. And, yeah, so this, yes, there's always some, some sort of uh, bits in me that, yeah, I can, I can do with another contact or get, in, get amongst it, you know. But then when I see my kids sitting next to me and my wife, you know, in the same house, and I think, oh, maybe not, you know. But you think, yeah, yeah, why not? Yeah, get, in, get amongst it, you know, that, that, that rush. But then again, is it, is it wrong to go for the rush? It's, uh, it's hard to say. I want to do a part two, mate, and I want to do it soon, um, if it's yeah, good mate. with you, where we talk about, because I want, really want to talk about, you know, to be honest, I want to indulge my own thing and talk about writing. So I want to talk about writing. I want to talk about some philosophical questions. But I want to go. I want to finish off with one more philosophical question today, mate. And, oh, the, the other thing yeah. I want to talk about on part two as well, mate, is um, the private security. Um, yeah, sure. But I just want to. Keep, I want to finish off today with a bit of a philosophical one, mate. Kind of touching on what you were just saying there. Is war or peace the natural state of man? Ah, that's a good question, man. That's a, that's a really good question. Um, I don't think we would design or just to go through life where everything is easy um, and, and, and peaceful. You know, we've, we've got the ability to, to do phenomenal sort of um, things, you know, and um, we can endure hardship. We can, we can make things work. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's hard, to, hard to answer. It's such a good question, it's, All right, it's, it's well, difficult. we can come back to our part two, mate. I'll give you some. I'll give you a couple of days to think about this one. Yeah, and, um, we'll we'll come back to it. You can have a bit of homework, mate, um, to yeah. scratch your brain over. Because I mean, look, like this is something I scratch my my brain over a lot, mate. But um, mate, let's wrap it up there for tonight. Because one, I might have fucked up the recording. <laughs> there might not be any. <laughs> there might not be any audio. So. Um, well, well, let people know where they can find you, mate, and then um, I'll end the recording, and then we can figure out when we're going to do part two. So where, um, where yeah. can people find you online? Uh, Instagram, it's a good place to go and look. Um, a lot of my, actually, all my writing and examples of writing is on there. Um, the exact um, handle, actually, I can't remember, man, um, and also on, on, on Facebook, but predominantly all my stuff would be on Instagram. At, so big, my- at big, dirty, big porn tash, isn't it? That's your. Uh, that would be handle. the one, yeah. That would be my black ops one, yeah. <laughs> um, I'll, I'll make sure everything's. In, I'll, I'll, I'll link it down in the show notes so people can uh, click on there and obviously be sharing these posts on social media. And um, if you are listening, guys, at this point, because I know some people click off at the end because you lot of fuckers don't love me. Um, if you have enjoyed the podcast, please do share it. Uh, please go follow Nev on social media, uh, tell a mates, all that kind of stuff. And um, I have been. Like I said earlier, drinking a delicious shake from Combat Fuel for this. Please check out Combat Fuel. They make the episode possible. They make the podcast possible. They kept, and um, they, I took some of their pre-workout a bit, a little bit beforehand as well because we are recording this late now because Nev is on the other side of the world. Uh, but Nev, thanks for coming on, mate. Um, 
and uh, we will be back with a part two very soon.